Oh, let's pray. Our most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before your mighty throne, so thankful for the blood of Christ that allows us to do so. Lord, as we open your word and look into it, help the stuttering, stammering lips to present what you would have me to present, Lord. Let us have eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, Jeremiah chapter 17. We're going to look um, first at verse 12. So Jeremiah 17, verse 12. It reads, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. I honestly find Jeremiah chapter 17 to be just a fascinating chapter of Scripture does really move with such a rapid pace and it has many sharp turns, I'd say it's almost poetic. In the first six verses, Jeremiah, he covers a lot of ground. We have a description of Judah's sin being written with a pen of iron on the tablets of their heart. And next we have a description of their idol worship in the groves. He swiftly moves to illustrate the kindling of God's anger and removing their heritage and turning them over to their enemies. And then he hits even harder with the pithy statement of verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord, and the curse upon any that trust in man. Finally, to wrap up that section, he says that man will be, that, that that man will be like a heath, or a useless, fruitless, inedible shrub um, in a salt land not inhabited. So a useless shrub in a desert place. But as quickly as he began with the disease, he pivots to the cure. Verses 7 to 8 read, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Another quick turn back to rebuke in verses 9 to 11, covering the heart of man, the Lord's searching of the heart, and a warning about wrongly acquiring riches. And then we come back to the verse that I want to focus on today that we started with, verse 12. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. John Gill, in his commentary on Jeremiah 17, has this to say about verse 12. The temple, which was a sanctified place, where the holy God dwelt, his holy worship was observed, and his holy people met together. Here, from the beginning of its erection, from the time of its dedication, the Lord took up his residence. The glory of the Lord filled the house. He set up his throne in it, a high and glorious one. He dwelt between the cherubim, over the mercy seat, typical of, or a type of, the throne of grace. All sinners washed in the blood of Jesus Christ were bought with a price to serve the creator of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The Lord God Almighty is the one who rightfully sits on his throne, a glorious high throne from the beginning. It's a throne so majestic we cannot possibly fathom its magnificence. It's a throne so glorious that all earthly thrones would appear a dunghill in comparison. 
It's a throne that human language cannot even come close to describing accurately. John makes an attempt. Turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 4 and beginning in verse 2. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Skip ahead to verse 9. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. This is the throne of grace that we come before when we enter into God's presence in prayer. Immediately after Jesus yielded up the ghost, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one records, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Now, the veil in the temple, as you know, separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. There's many things that that rending of the veil signified, but I want you to consider one of them in particular. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says it so well. It signified the consecrating and laying open of a new and living way to God. The veil kept people off from drawing near to the most holy place where the Shekinah was, but the rending of it signified that Christ by his death opened a way to God. The great gulf between God and man was bridged by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He gave those redeemed by his blood the ability to come to the throne of grace. John 14, 6 records Christ's words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We cannot come to the throne but by Christ. So we have a beautiful throne. We have a blood have blood-bought access to the throne. But I'd like to spend the last couple of minutes talking about our behavior before the throne. If we were given an opportunity to come before a very high-ranking political figure that we greatly admire or the CEO of the corporation we work for, or some great world-renowned philanthropist? How do we envision that meeting taking place? Would we drag ourselves into the grand meeting hall, disheveled and sullen? Would we appear to be there out of a feeling of mere duty? Would we be checking our phones every few minutes? Would we be thinking about all that we have to do outside this precious meeting? How would we speak? How would we act? How would we listen? I don't think there's any doubt in our minds how we would present ourselves for such a meeting. 
And so I ask myself, if I would go to such great lengths before mere man, how much more should I do before my God and King, the one who Daniel writes, he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. How often would Christ say to me, as he did to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, what, could ye not watch with me one hour? Or would he say something like this? Could ye not turn your phone off? Or not check your email? Or not wander away? Or fill in the blank for one hour? In his book, The Power in Prayer, C.H. Spurgeon writes this, If prayer should always be regarded by us as an entrance into the courts of the royalty of heaven, if we are to behave ourselves as courtiers should in the presence of an illustrious majesty, then we are not at a loss to know the right spirit in which to pray. If in prayer we come to a throne, it is clear that we should in the first place approach in a spirit of lowly reverence. It is expected that the subject in approaching the king should pay him homage and honor. The pride that will not acknowledge the king, the treason that rebels against the sovereign will, should, if it is wise, avoid any near approach to the throne. Oh, I plead with every one of us, myself included. May we all come to the throne with expectancy. Come before God with excitement. Come with a heart full of praise and worship. Come with all distractions put aside for the appointed time. Come to commune with our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Come to united prayer, ready to truly unite with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, come before your King. We've been given an incredible and unspeakable privilege and honor and even a bidding to come. Hebrews 4.16 reads, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But may we come boldly with respect and reverence and fear, for a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Amen.